Welcome to Toby Haydokes, Who's Round, an interview <laughs> that is actually longer than the running time of the four episodes this man directed. But he's so good, I couldn't cut any of it out. Delighted to be the guest at the house of somebody I interviewed a couple of years ago about Quatermass, and he's kindly allowed me back in to talk to him about all sorts of other creatures. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, my name is Daryl Blake, and in 1978 I directed one Doctor Who, a four-parter called Stones of Blood, which was the hundredth story and the fifteenth anniversary of the show starting in '63. Um, and there's a story attached to that, but we'll come to that in the fullness of time, I'm sure. Celebration of the 15 years, I mean. Um, it came to me at a time when um, I was had gone freelance in 1970 from the BBC, where I was born and brought up, and um, I was taking anything, really, that came. At that stage, Doctor Who was a sort of... the way, 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 way down market in terms of the, the drama output and it was a fairly cheap show sort of thing, you know minor sort of drama output thing, and but I was happy to do it and Graham Williams who was the producer at that particular point and who offered me the job um, I had worked with uh, in 71, I think it must have been on a series called The Regiment where he had been um, a sort of assistant or apprentice script editor and uh, we got on very well and uh, Bill Slater who was the producer uh, originally of the pilot um, and he were good friends and uh, so it was a sort of um, uh, well, it was a sort of trio of, of us I suppose put the, put the regiment together or partly so Anyway, uh, back to Doctor Who. The um, the script that I read, uh, and of course we did, was uh, set in 1978 and had a very few characters. So I remember saying to Graham, oh, it's the cheap one. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, he said, no, no, no. Um, Tom Baker was, of course, playing Doctor Who at that stage. And um, when we came to actually do the job, could do the work... Um, in the rehearsal room or on location, um, uh, we got on terribly well. And he was uh, quite in awe, actually, of uh, an actress called Beatrix Lehman, who I'd cast as the old lady archaeologist. And um, she, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, put him through it. I mean, they'd stand together in the rehearsal room and, she, and she'd suddenly say, are you going to do that? We didn't do that yesterday, and he and he would sort of hit the chalk mark and stay, say the line. <laughs> it, it was wonderful to watch. So that was a trick I didn't know I'd pulled, and um, it worked terribly well. Uh, and uh, we got on very well anyway. I remember him stopping in the middle of a rehearsal one day in the, in, in the Acton Hilton and saying, "Do you enjoy your children, Daryl?" So I said, um, uh, yes, of course I do. Yes, yes, yes I, I said, do. Oh, good, he said, and got on with the scene. And 
things of that kind would happen. Uh, and whenever we've met subsequently on trains or in studios or whatever, um, it, it's always been a happy uh, occasion. And to my amazement, uh, I'm included in his rather wonderful autobiography, um, which was a great surprise. But Mary Tam said that he liked me, which I think is a, a badge of honour. Um, anyway, back to the practicalities. Um, we, I had decided to do the whole thing, the whole thing on tape, um, because I had, I hated, and I had done for many years, the thought of having sixteen mil locations and tape studio interiors, and they just don't look the same. Um, even though it's the same selective eye from a director, it just doesn't look the same and uh, doesn't feel the same. Blah, blah, blah. So anyway, uh, I had persuaded for some time my employers, the producers, to uh, use all tape or all film, or depending whatever it was. And uh, on this occasion, we went out with an, uh, an outside broadcast unit, great big vans and things, um, to the Rollwright Stones in Oxfordshire. And it, it's at a point where you can see about three counties, I think it is. It's a wonderful site. And the crew that came to me, splendid they were, uh, had just done Mayor of Casterbridge. And the, 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 cast, the crew then came to me in, in, <laughs> in Oxfordshire to do this modest little show called Doctor Who. Um, and one of the reasons why it worked uh, on tape and uh, as an OB unit type thing was the fact that all the locations were very close together. Um, so you just drove the van down the road and you were at the next location sort of thing um, uh, one of the things that did happen that uh, we were there for two or three days and uh, staying in a local hotel which Tom enjoyed enormously because he didn't have a home at that point but that's another story um, he used to sort of live in his costume with a toothbrush in a top pocket um, and uh, um, one of the things that happened that overnight was that the TARDIS disappeared and of course, some concern, of course, and um, we, we, the, the, the location for that morning was the exterior of a minor stately home, which we were using um, as, as the, the minor character's home, and was actually a, a sort of training ground for young executives, a training school, you know. Uh, and what had happened, of course, was that overnight they had picked up a TARDIS and run with it and then we found it in a in a uh, quarry down the road which we were using anyway so it, that, that was all okay but uh, they thought that was a great jape um, um, the there was some there was some big crows big big black birds which were part of the story in some minor way uh, and I have a feeling that that was all a terrible fizzle you can't really train them, but somebody had tried, and all they had, I needed them to do really was to perch on top of the TARDIS, as I remember. And of course, they flew away. Um, I don't know whether they ever got them back, but that was a, uh, you know a small, <laughs> a small thing that fizzled out. Um, and we came back to the studio, of course, and did did the show, the four episodes in two sessions, in the studio, a week or so apart. Um, and the, the first one, we did the night scenes in the Royal Wright Stones in the studio uh, because the, 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 the sort of altar area in the Royal Wright Stones was, was totally phony. We had built, designed and built that and taken it out there. So we were able to have it in the studio for the night scenes. 
Um, and the scenes that we did in the studio, of course, were little bits of scenes and a hell of a lot of them for the four episodes, um, which even I found confusing. But the only person in the studio who knew exactly what was happening at all times was Beatrice Lehman. She was absolutely indestructible um, and turned in, I thought, a wonderful performance. Uh, and looking at it now, as I do occasionally, uh, I just don't think I gave her enough of the screen time, really. I mean, I, the camera was on Tom far too much of the time. <laughs> I now tell myself. <laughs> um, when I read the script and uh, decided that the stones that, that moved and sucked blood were going to be special effects stones, I discovered when I arrived uh, in the office to actually start the production period that the costume designer had designed... Uh, something for uh, an actor to walk around in, which looked like a cereal packet with knobs on. And uh, I thought, I'm not going to have that. So the, the costume designer's nose was out of joint before he even started. Uh, but I went to special effects and they made me these stones with lights in and, and they moved on a little track. Uh, and I wanted one or two stock shots and I went to a library at Upperdale Street Film Studios um, to get a moan going behind clouds and things like that. Um, so there were, there were <laughs> having said it was all on tape, uh, I now have to admit that there were one or two shots which were <laughs> actually on film, um, stock shots, uh, waves on the beat, on the shore, and, and as I say, this, this moon. And on the same reel as the moon going behind the clouds, which I think was X Hammer Films or something, I saw a shot, an incredible shot, looking down from a cliff top of a light disappearing under the waves. Well, I had absolutely no idea what it was originally, but I thought, ah, that's the moment when the stone goes over the cliff and disappears into the water. Uh, so I had that, uh, and that is in the show. But that was just happenstance, spotting that, um, uh, that shot. Um, Stones were uh, magnificently made by our special effects department out at Acton um, and I think worked very well. Uh, I'm reminded of the young couple in the tent. Um, who, who, um, the girl puts her hand on the, um, on the stone and of course is immediately consumed. Um, and the young people were Shirin Taylor, the girl Shirin Taylor, who had a... a quite a distinguished career after that in the West End and, of course, in Coronation Street. Um, and the boy, um, uh, James Murray, was the son of um, Pete Murray, the, the, the um, uh, disc jockey on radio uh, and an actor. He was a rank starlet way back in the 40s. Uh, and, unfortunately, um, uh, James coming to a sad end. But... Um, uh, they, were, they were nice to work with. I remember saying to, the, to James, uh, what do you wear in bed? And he said, nothing. So I said, well, that, that's what I was afraid of. I think you better put your jeans on when you come out of the tent. So, <laughs> so he did. Um, Although wandering. It's, 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 no, I like it because it's, it's quite a moment, that, because he actually comes out doing his jeans up, yes. which is one of the only suggestions in Doctor Who that somebody might not be wearing any trousers. I like it. Um, and I don't know if you know this, but when 
Doctor Who magazine commissioned a load of high-profile Doctor Who people to write about a story that they liked. Russell T. Davis, no less, wrote about the Stones of Blood. Did he? And yeah. highlighted that scene by saying it has no reason to be there apart from to kill two people, and that's why it's brilliant, because you meet these people, you have a little bit of an interaction between them, and then they die. That's all they're there for, and he loves it. So, I, so that's quite nice uh, mm. of all of all the people to have chosen. Yes, uh, and it is a great scene. Yeah. Um, would you do you like working on film? Would you have? I I, I really don't mind either. Um, I've done. My reputation is of is as a studio director. You know, a multicam studio director, live or otherwise, and uh, so. My work with the film camera is is really quite sparse, uh, but I don't mind. I mean, I, I like both. Um, and one thing that I I didn't really enjoy about the film part of when I was obliged to have a, a show which was majorly on in studio tape, as it were, and a bit of sixteen uh, mil film location work, which I did did do grudgingly on occasion that film was then taken into the editing room and then in the dubbing theatre and it was cut and dubbed within an inch of its life. I remember doing Tucker's Luck, for instance, and I had these teenage boys running across a grass lawn or, or field or common or something or other, and they dubbed footsteps on them and then they were in trainers on grass. Now, just, just think of the hours that took to lay those footsteps and things and, and oh, you know, it was just unreal is the word I think sorry no <laughs> this is this is the stuff this is the stuff this is the sort of thing that makes it so different from you know the the um, um, the, the normal you know the sort of the normal studio stuff which um, in my youth when I was still in the design department and sharing a flat with somebody called Ridley Scott uh, and Jeff Kirkland um, we used to hate watching television shows that began on film, uh, usually titles plus a, a location shoot, and then it would cut to the studio and we'd all sit there and say, cue anticlimax, because, <laughs> because, <laughs> because it was different and it was generally dead, you know, the, the, the studio atmosphere was just dead compared to what we'd just seen, over-edited over -edited and overdubbed <laughs> in the opening sequence. Well, so let's go back, because you've, you've, you've highlighted that you, you didn't start off as, as a director. So what was your background, and how did you end up designing at the BBC, and prior to that, being a design assistant on an illustrious production like Quatermass 2? And Doctor Who. Um, well, um, go right back to being at school... Uh, at the age of about 10 or 11, in a, a local, you know, primary school in Hayes, Middlesex. So I'm in the easy reach of London, um, i.e. West End. Um, I was in a production of Treasure Island in the school, at, as I say, age 10, and decided that that's what I wanted to do in life. I wanted to be in shows forever and ever and ever and ever. And guess what? Be a director. So it was all sorted by the time I was 11 or 12. <laughs> and um, at that point, I went to a grammar school. I passed 11 plus, much to everyone's surprise, and went to Drayton Manor in Hanwell um, Grammar School, 
Nobody in my family had ever been to university, except an aunt who'd been trained as a teacher. Um, and we were, you know, working class Hayes family. And um, so therefore, at the, end of, at the end of the fifth year, I was, I was going out to work. I mean, that, that was, you know, what one did. And uh, so and I had my own company in the school, of course. We were doing plays all over the place. And, um, and I was in the school official productions as well. Um, and so when, when I was in the fifth form, uh, I wrote around. I, well, by the way, I'd worked in the, in the local rep painting scenery in school holidays and at the week, helping with the, the get-in and the get-out on, on Saturday evenings um, as a teenager. And anyway, uh, come 16 and I'm in the fifth form and I write around Ealing Studios, BBC Television, Harrow Coliseum, which was still going at that time. The, the local rep had folded and closed and been pulled down. Um, and the only people who bothered to reply to me were the BBC, who said we have vacancies for office juniors, warehouse clerks, and Radio Times clerks. And I thought, how dare they? Uh, and didn't do anything about it. And I was out of work for a whole month when I left school at 16, in the August of 53, and thought that I would get in touch with the BBC. And so I did, and got a job as an office junior, so-called, uh, which turned out to be a page at Lime Grove reception, um, which I did for two or three months, I suppose, uh, the, the autumn of, of 1953. And since I was a grammar school boy and all the other boys weren't, um, I was spotted and pulled up into the office that, that controlled us, as it were. And one little anecdote at that time was that the Queen came to Lime Grove, she was newly crowned, and uh, knighted on the spot the, the man who was running BBC television at the time. And the next morning, I, I had no part in any of that, of course, and I went into the office the next morning and our boss said that his boss had gone to the palace. And, of course, in those days, it was Alexandra Palace, which was, you know, on all our lips because that's where the other half of the production was, half of the company was. And so he said, no... Buckingham Palace, they left the sword behind. <laughs> Which I thought was quite funny. Anyway, I saw on the board, this is rather a long answer to your question about the design department, um, uh, uh, an advertisement for a junior to operate the print room in the design department. Prior to that, they sent all the drawings, all the working drawings out to be printed in causes in Goldhawk Road. They, they bought their own printing machine, so... That was my bottom rung, bottom step in the design department. And I did that, worked work the print room and took the prints around to the workshops, to the, all the designers and all the... Blah, blah, blah. So I got to know um, the design department by the back of my hand. Like I had done as a messenger boy in Lime Grove, I knew that that extraordinary building, which I still dream about and, and miss... The Lime Grove Studios, which is an incredible building. I knew that. I had to know that, like the back of my hand, because as a messenger boy around the place, which came in useful later. Um, so into the design department. And, of course, National Service was looming. And I, uh, I had attached myself, although working in the print room, to a wonderful designer called Stephen Taylor. And he was quite the most talented fellow. Uh, in the department and uh, um, used to, in my own time we used to go and help him in the studio and that's how I came to be in the studio on 
Quatermass too. Uh, Stephen was a designer of that. So um, I went into the Air Force at the end of 55 when uh, um, Quatermass faded from the screen and uh, volunteered for all the sort of foreign places that were, were trouble spots at the time and got sent to Epping. We were actually working in a, in a dummy hill like something out of a Bond film, really, uh, at Kelvin Hatch, further down the road, which is now well known. Uh, it was a secret establishment at the time, but it's on all the maps now. Um, but uh, that meant I was at the other end of the central line. And uh, whenever Stephen had anything interesting on the floor, and that was a hell of a lot of the time, I was back there in my RAF uniform, sitting behind the director, whether it was Rudy Cartier or whoever. Uh, and Stephen died, by the way, frighteningly young. He was, I think he was 33 when he died. He would be very tired... Uh, by tea time on the, on the second day, so he would quite often go home. So very often I would be sitting behind someone like Rudy Cartier in my RAF uniform as the design department's representative on the major output of the week, <laughs> um, which happened on you know half a dozen occasions, I suppose, over the two years. At the end of the two years, one of the things that was wonderful about, well, not wonderful, but useful about um, national service was that if you were employed before you went in, your employer had to take you back afterwards. So I was straight back in the design department. By now, um, I was uh, employed as a design assistant. I was on a drawing board, in other words, not in the print room. And I assisted uh, two or three different designers in the first weeks back. Uh, oh, by the way, I'd been to evening classes while I was in the print room to learn architectural drawing and also figure drawing and things like that. Um, so I could actually drive a drawing board, not very well, but I could do it. Um, and as I say, only, this, this really only happened for two or three weeks, perhaps a month or so, when I came back. Then I was put with uh, a Russian woman called Natasha Kroll, who Dick Levin, head of the department, had brought in to raised the standard of all the sort of small programmes, the religious programmes, the talk shows, the women's programmes, the PAL games, the sort of odds and ends of television design. Um, and we were called the Studio Design Unit. And it was Natasha who was the senior designer. I was one of the irks. Natasha got bored quite early and said to Dick Levin, Oh, Dick, I do a play. And uh, she had not a clue a clue how to, to go about a drama and they gave her The Lower Depths which is a famous Russian play set in about 1905 or 06 it was directed by a marvellous man called Michael Elliott oh. and I went with her to the meeting so that I could sort of help and by God did I have to help uh, she really had not a clue how to do it but anyway uh, Michael fortunately was very uh, specific about what he wanted because this play of course was going out live and um, uh, so we had a box set which was a complete four sided box set uh, which was where all these down and outs lived in, in a basement supposedly in Moscow and uh, Michael had devised a very um, intricate and, and uh, complicated camera script around this box set and it was in Studio D Lime Grove I can, I can remember it as that was yesterday uh, we were talking about early, <laughs> early 
58, or some point in 58, and I suddenly became aware that there were a couple of the scene boys were dragging this black drape on a, on a drape frame across the studio, banging the lights and goodness knows what. So I said, Natasha, what are they doing? So she said, it's the back of the camera trap. So I said, Natasha, the camera's looking into the set, not out. Oh, oh my God, you tell them I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary how these ridiculous things stay in the memory for, for all those years. Anyway, um, I was with her for three or four years. And during that time, take a Monday, we would do, or I would do, four shows on a Monday. You'd have, this is your life in the theatre, which is the Seventh Bush Empire. Uh, Panorama in Lime Grove, uh, Studio D or G. Uh, and the women's programmes down in Riverside. So it was quite hard on the feet. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, in those years, the women, particularly in women's programmes, who produced the programmes, Lorna Pegram, Joyce Bullen, Monica Sims, um, knew that I wanted to be a director. So they let me direct. Uh, Joyce Bullen let me direct two live fashion shows, which was terribly easy to do, just make pretty pictures, because the, there was only one sound. That was a, a, the narrator, the compare on the stand mic, as it were. So the rest was just pretty pictures. And then a couple of others. So what had happened in the design department was that um, I was designing shows, but was being paid as a design assistant. I mean, I was only doing minor shows. Uh, and when I escaped from SDU, well, after about three or four years, I assisted um, one or two designers as an assistant, and one of which, of course, was, was Barry Newbury on the first series of Doctor Who. And I drew up the... Got his name, the, the the explorer, Italian explorer, which Marco Polo. Marco Marco Polo that um, Warris, I think. Well, it was Warris directed. Uh, directed, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't go in the studio with it, but I did, I did the drawing for for Barry. Uh, the next drawing board to me was one um, Ray Cusick, who of course was designing the Daleks, uh, and he explained to me why these these strange tin cans were were necessary. Uh, because of the, the 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 person inside had you know turned to jelly or whatever it was, uh, so that's my early connection with something called Doctor Who, um, and then I assisted one or two others, and then I was given several periods acting up, as the BBC used to say, as a designer. So I would design shows for myself and get. ERR, which was extra responsibility reward. Is, is that enough about the design department? Yes, well, I, I mean, I'm yeah. interested in the people as well. I mean, cause, because Barry and Ray generally took Doctor Who between them in those yeah. early years yeah. with, the, with the odd Spencer Chapman coming in now and again. But, yes. So what, what do you remember of those two? Because uh, Ray always seemed to do the sci-fi, Barry always seemed to do the history. So were they different personalities? Yes. <laughs> I would say that Barry and Ray were different personalities. Um, difficult, actually, at this, this distance to define. Um, Barry and Ray, to me. Um, Barry was very... I mean, he was quite, quite giggly, as it were, every now and then. 
but he was very um, gentle and precise and, and um, you know, his, his work was certainly very well detailed and, and uh, I really can't say anything more about it really. I mean, it, it, uh, I could give you a little thumbnail sketch of all those people in the, in the design department at that time, especially when I was in the print room. And, um, and there were some, were some quite, you know, striking personalities. Ray, on the other hand, was rather more of a sort of cool guy, if you know what I mean. Um, and I was certainly younger than they were, that's, that's for sure. So they, weren't, they didn't actually talk down to me. But at the same time, there was an air of me being less experienced, certainly less trained. Um, so... If you can imagine, you know, the, the cool guy who knew it all and, and the idiot at the next drawing board, that's, that's sort of how I would describe us in 1963 for somewhere around there. Um, yes, I mean, that, that's it. And you're a contemporary of, you mentioned um, Ridley Scott. So yeah. was, was he always destined for greatness? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, he was known from the beginning as the boy with the golden balls. I mean, that, that was no problem. What, the, way he, the way we met was that, um, as I've already said, I was an assistant acting up and not being paid for, as a designer and then being paid as a designer and then back on the dry board. As a, and this went on for years and years. And what would happen every year is that Dick Levin, head of department, would go to the Royal College diploma show and bring in a couple of youngsters from the Royal College um, to work as holiday reliefs in the design department. And if they were any good, they were kept on and became, you know, joined the swelling ranks of designers in, in, our, in our little world. So my immediate contemporaries were brought in in that way and didn't do the, the 100 years apprenticeship that I had done. And so this happened once, twice, and I thought, oh, well, if you can't lick them, join them. And uh, Ridley Scott and um, Malcolm Middleton mm -hmm. were sitting at lunch uh, in the Waitress Service and Television Centre one day. So I went and joined them. And uh, they found me, Rid particularly, found me terribly useful because I knew my way around the BBC and how. And... Um, we became pals and took a flat together with uh, a third guy who had just come in from the from the Royal College, Jeff, Jeffrey Kirkland, and um, a flat in Barnes and uh, in a mansion block, <laughs> three bedrooms, big sitting room, kitchen uh, for nine pounds a week. <laughs> So it was three pounds each, <laughs> but it was I was the only one who was permanently employed. So the flat was in my name, um, and that was the beginning of a very jolly three years. Um, and I remember Reed doing uh, designing Dial M for Murder, directed by Alan Bridges, and um, he he just wouldn't leave it alone. He had to be literally carried off the set because he was still strewing leaves on the on the floor in the garden set when they started the recording and uh, he just wouldn't leave it alone um, and he poured and poured and poured 
energy and invention into absolutely everything he did. He used to sit up in the kitchen till five in the morning building a model for the Matt Monroe show, which is going to be in the television theatre directed by Yvonne Littlewood. And this enormous set would, would be installed three-dimensional, very complicated, reaching right up into the flies in the, in the Seamus Bridge Empire. And what did Yvonne Littlewood take? An MCU of a man singing. Um, of course she would. That's what the show was about. Red. Um, <laughs> uh, and I used to gauge my success by what, how close what appeared on the screen how close it was to what we, the director and I, had set out to do. If he didn't shoot that flat or he didn't shoot that aspect, then, you know, too bad, really. But if he shot 98% of it, of what we decided to do, then I thought that was a success. If he ignored my set and just took close-ups of the actors, then that was a, that was a failure of communication and a, and a failure as far as I was concerned. Whereas Ridd would build a, an enormous set, beautifully detailed and bloody heavy and, and difficult for the scene boys. Um, but uh, not necessarily anything to do with what was on the page or, or what the director was doing. Um, so, um, but at that time there was a, there was a tradition. Uh, the design department would go to lunch in the canteen block and then come back and there'll be a tour of the studios and uh, look at various people's offerings uh, in the various studios. And it was Television Centre, I have to say at that time, where I was going like the clappers. Uh, sets were ripped out overnight and new ones put in. And it was an incredibly uh, vital and volatile factory uh, of television studios. And the design department was packed with... with very talented people. Eventually I got into drama in 1970 and the very first thing I did was, um, what had happened was that when I, briefly, when I was in the design department, I'd done a night shoot, uh, which was an, on, as a designer, on which the um, director was Terry Dudley. He then, later on, uh, produced a, uh, an extraordinary successful series called Do Much. Tremendous uh, success, the first series. And I was in arts features at that point, making, teaching myself to make films. And I wrote to him saying, um, if you go around again, do think of me. And back came a nice letter saying, we're watching your career with interest. Um, nothing for you at the moment, but keep in touch. About a fortnight later, I saw him in the bar and television centre. And he said, oh, pleased, uh, I'm so pleased I've seen you. I've got something for you. Obviously, somebody turned down this script and turned out to be... Um, uh, sorry, dried on his name. Um, that's a genuine dry, by the way. <laughs> I wasn't being kind. Um, and it was, it was, it was uh, this do much script. And um, that was got me from... A, it got me off the BBC staff because I was in Arts Features in Kensington House as in a staff position. In order to get into drama series, I had to go freelance. This is 1970, just as our twins were born. And... Um, so I did. I, I took the plunge and, and left uh, to do this do much for dear Terry. And um, of the actors I'd worked with prior to that, when I was a designer, uh, John Wood had stood out. Um, 
and I, I made him the sort of the guest scientist. Um, the episode that I started with was the introduction of an actress called Jean Trend to the um, Do Much team. And the plot was that she was a, you know, an, an ex of this particular scientist. And John was very good, of course. Uh, and I somehow arranged the, the, the credits and so that, and I think I even put guest starring John Wood. Yeah, you have the whole cast, and then last you have and guest star John Wood. Yeah, yes, and I didn't. I thought that's what I'd seen on previous Doom watches, but I don't know how it happened. But apparently, this this was trend setting, and and you know, I got accused of being I don't know, you know, empire building or something. <laughs> uh, but I really didn't know I'd done it, and and I thought that was what one did, you know, when you had a sort of. Um, reputable guest star, you, you build him as such. Uh, but apparently nobody had done it before. And then, they, they, of course, they went and did it. And I did, apparently, John Nathan Turner told me that I did the same sort of thing with, with the Doctor Who. But then I had Beatrice Lehman and, and Susie Engel in as guests on, on the Doctor Who. That that set the trend for other people to do the same. I mean, to invite sort of namey people to guest in Doctor Who. I'm pretty sure that had been done before. Anyway, um, that's what Nathan Turner accused me of. Um, uh, well, also was... in your first Doom Watch, you have somebody who you worked with subsequently and who uh, made quite a contribution to Doctor Who, but not when you were on it, which is Anthony Ainley, who's quite um, an enigmatic yes. figure yes. who played the master. Do you have any memories of Anthony? Oh, yes, such a charmer. Um, I don't... I'm trying to think how he came to be cast. He was with Anthony Sharp, who there were two doctors I remember, and uh, or medics in some way or other. And Anthony Sharp was a neighbour and a friend um, in Barnes, and our daughters played together, and that's how I knew Anthony. And he was a wonderful actor anyway, and director and writer. And um, I remember him standing in the rehearsal room in the Acton Hilton and saying, "Oh dear, oh." To whom do I have to thank? Oh, do you have to thank for, for getting this part? So I said, uh, well, me, I suppose. So he said, oh, it's the first time I've been in BBC drama for eight years. They think I can only do lightness Timot. And, um, dear Tony, and uh, people, were, like directors, people were in grooves. I mean, they were employed only by entertainment or by drama series or by plays, never the twain, you know. Anyway, Tony Ainley. Yes. He certainly became a friend subsequently. Because uh, he used to be in Shadow of the Tower not long after as well. For me, yes, yeah. yes, that's right. And and um, I remember him coming to dinner in Barnes uh, after that, must have been. And he was in the studio with a posh play, Trelawney of the Wells. And... Um, <laughs> I don't know whether I should say this, but anyway... Um, the leading lady was getting married. And Michael Horder... Everybody, they couldn't rehearse so because she was getting married the next day. So um, uh, everyone was given the day off. And they went... Whoa. And Michael Horder said to her, Oh, we're getting married, my dear. Anyone we know? So she said, Christopher Morahan. So he said, Oh, no. 
And I later met Christopher Moran in, in um, well, sort of met Christopher Moran in unfortunate circumstances. Because in the mid-70s, I decided, I'd, yes, I decided I should write. I, I must get out of series and serials and get into plays. That was the, and, then, and then the movies, of course. I mean, that was the next step that everybody did. Read had done. Uh, and the generation before me, Jack Gold, Michael Tuckner, uh, Kevin Billington, that, that trio were all mates on Tonight programme and went through television drama and then into f real films. Anyway, um, I, I, I got the idea of doing a play, television play or film, set in Television Centre, because I, by now I'd been in the building since 1954, January 1954 I went there in the print room, and so I knew the place inside out like I had known tele, uh, uh, Lime Grove. And I'd collected people over the years. There was a wonderful lady called Mrs Reynolds who was the hospitality waitress. And I, used to, I used to go in on the bus with her quite often. She lived in Roehampton. And she gave me wonderful stories of, of, of waiting at top tables in, in the BBC. Uh, and about the Marks and Spencers, head of Marks and Spencers came in and, and was given dinner by Hugh Weldon. Uh, and the idea was that uh, he was going to persuade the BBC to do a documentary about Marks and Spencers, which obviously was going to be a huge ad. And he didn't get it, she said. He didn't get it. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that and uh, VT editors and obviously designers and, and whatever. So I'd, I'd woven this play outline set in Television Centre. And by then I had a rather smart agent. And he put me with... Oh, I'm, trying, I'm trying on a name now. Brian Clark. He put me with one of his real writers, Brian Clark. Uh, famous for all sorts of things, including whose, whose life is it anyway. Um, and I explained the outline and the characters. And, and, blah, 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 blah. and I said, but you know, I'm... I'm I'm no writer, but I can give you characters and I can give you situations and, you know, we'll, we'll work it out together. And he was very enthusiastic about it. And we've been sitting in our agent's outer office talking and the agent came out and said, um, can you see Mark Sheavers on Tuesday or Wednesday next week? And we said, ah! <laughs> we're not ready to see anybody. And so he said, Tuesday or Wednesday? So we said, oh, uh, Wednesday. So, Brian and I went to see Mark Sheavis and his script editor, Richard Brooke, and outlined this play. And it was commissioned. And it was written by Brian Clark. Chris Morahan was head of plays at that point. Um... And it was submitted. And I got a letter saying, presumably by my agent, I can't remember, um, Daryl Blake is unacceptable as director of this project. And by then, Chris Moran had, had gone. It was a long, long time before the reaction happened. Um, and, but undoubtedly it was him um, who'd, who'd issued the edict and um, 
Jimmy Keckler Jones, who I knew, was head of plays. So I wrote to him, saying, difficult to know how to phrase this without it sounding like a bleat, but um, what are the reasons that I am unacceptable? Um, yes, well, I've done this, I've done that, done the other. Anyway, uh, back came the letter saying, sorry, still unacceptable. So the script existed on a shelf somewhere. In the meantime, I'm going on doing series and serials, and I'm, I get hired to do a crown court for Granada, and they were casting in St James Square, not St James Square, um, Golden Square in, in, in London. And I said to the la dear lady who was casting with me, who's that? Obviously a director in the next room. So she said, it's, it's Brian Gibson. So I said, oh. Because I'd heard that Michael Tutner had, had the play, my play, for a time, and it wasn't produced. And it had been passed to Brian Gibson. I still hadn't seen it, by the way. Um, so we met in the corridor. And I said, hello, my name's Daryl Blake. And he looked at me and he said, it's in there on the desk. That's all he said. So obviously, you know, Mike, dear Mike Tutner, who I knew, and and Gibson, who I didn't know, had been told the backstory. Uh, so I went in, and I picked up the script, and I opened the first page, and it said a busload of giggling teenagers is unloaded at Television Centre front door for Top of the Pops. And I turned the next page, and something else. And I thought, I can't, I just can't. And I put it down. And that was the end of the story. Uh, and <laughs> So that was, that was Christopher Moran's story. <laughs> you never got to the... But you never got to the... Oh, sorry, there was a payoff. There was a payoff to, 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 the, uh, to that, that the play. I can't even remember what he called it now. And... Um, Various people were working in plays. Oh, I was working in plays. God, I was working in plays. I, I, I wrote, I did actually write as a, as, a, as a subsequent to this, or quite soon after this, like what, the next year, 76. I had as a friend a, 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 an actor, a nice young actor called Nigel Bradshaw. And he came to me and said he wanted to do a one-man show of the works of Rupert Brooke. And I thought, vain bugger. And uh, then looked into it researched it a bit and realised that Rupert wasn't um, the person that everyone thinks he was as a sort of, you know, mimsy, mimsy poet. He was a sort of um, football-playing, you know, party, really, uh, but incredibly sensitive. So I, you know, got together all the letters and the poems and things and, and said I'd, I'd write it for him or I'd co-write it with him. Did write it. Uh, and it turned out to be a play for about 13 people. <laughs> uh, and he, he was in, he was well in with a, with a, uh, a fringe theatre in Kingston called The Overground. And um, we got a date, we got an opening date. Uh, and so it was on. And then Dear Nigel had been out of work for so long and he suddenly got a play, a tour, a, a 
a murder mystery tour around the country with Kate O'Mara, I remember. Um, so he had to take it because he was penniless. And so he wasn't playing Rupert. So I then had to cast around for a Rupert. Brian Stoner appeared and was absolutely brilliant. Anyway, the play is on. Uh, and it's sold out and it's a great success. Wonderful notices. Cedric Messina, um, who was a friend with Ruth, his wife, that I inherited when I married Anne. They were friends of hers. Uh, and we'd, our children were of an age, and etc. So they, we were social friends. Cedric came to see it in this very hot little fringe theatre in Kingston. I said, I want to do it, I want to do it. So it was bought for television. So suddenly I'm in BBC plays as an acceptable director. And I said to Cedric, you know I'm unacceptable to the department. And, and he said, oh, well, I'll worry about that. <laughs> so, sorry, I've forgotten the point of this now. Uh, was it? Something so he's got Rupert Brooke, he's, he's come to see the Rupert Brooke show. Yes, no, 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 no. It's, it's, it was something to do with BBC plays. Uh, and, and oh yes I think I know what it is um, uh, uh, whoever was head of plays at this point and it wasn't Jimmy and it wasn't obviously um, uh, the other guy had gone somebody came in to oh this is three years later by the way um um came in to Alan Shawcross, who's, who's uh, um, Cedric's script editor, and said, have you got anything we could do on Tuesday? <laughs> <laughs> so Alan went, well, it's Daryl's play. Uh, and suddenly we, I, we were on. And uh, Cedric was in the middle of producing um, the BBC Shakespeare's. And one or two other epic things. I mean, he was, he was incredibly prolific. I mean, it was museum theatre, I have to say, but, uh, but, but um, you know, suddenly I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, knock him because he gave me my one and only chance in BBC plays. Uh, suddenly it was on because something had dropped out. And so the embarrassing thing about it was that I inherited a crew, a designer, a slot, which was totally at odds with my play. The designer wasn't suitable. Uh, the costume designer wasn't suitable. The, the, the lighting man was, was not a good idea for my play. Uh, and I said to Cedric, uh, and this is terribly embarrassing because uh, I knew the designer in question. Of course, Austin Spriggs. And um, I said, it's just, just not right for it. Cedric, you know, can you get me another one? You know, I, I want so-and-so and I named the best, <laughs> the most talented designer in the department at that particular time. And several days went by and I said, what's happening about the designer? He said, it's easier to change the director, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> so, and of course I was fending off, or my assistant was fending off calls from, from poor old Austin. And finally, I had to sit down with him, and he said, "Daryl, what do you want? Just tell me what you want, and I'll do it." You know, he said, "I've been on, I've been working out of the back of a truck for four years. I've been doing all film, location stuff, and what I wanted was a sort of fantasy studio, you know." Yeah. Because it was the play called um, 
Free Wine of Youth, um, was composed of his letters and poems. And scenes what I wrote. But, you know, it was mostly his writings. So it wasn't a realistic piece at all, you know. So you just needed little snatches of realism in a, in a white void or a black void or something or other, you know. Uh, which is what I told him to do and that's what he did and that's what we had. But, um, oh, another complication was that Brian Sterner, who'd been so brilliant uh, as Rupert on the stage, had, in the interim, played opposite Helen Mirren in As You Like It for Cedric and been eaten alive. So Cedric said, I'll tell you one thing, you're not having your Brian, you're, you're Rupert, uh, you know, not having your, yes, what did he say? You're not having your chap playing, that's it, your chap playing Rupert. So I, there I was, but the man who'd really made it on the stage, made it what it was, was not, not in. And uh, so I had to interview everybody in London who was blonde between 18 and 28. Uh, and that and some fairly funny people turned up, I can tell you, including Piers Brosnan, which was <laughs> was totally wrong. <laughs> I mean, he was then, you know, doing bit parts. Sure, yeah. We're talking about 1979. And um, I, I ended up with Simon Shepherd, who, who was, you know, a um, nice guy and looked vaguely right and so forth. But Brian... Brian Stoner, between the ears, had absolutely everything you needed to be a sensitive writer and blah, blah, blah. But Simon didn't really. Um, so it was, it was not a success. And it was abuse in columns from Nancy Banks-Smith, I remember. It was such a pity that Rupert's friends couldn't read his letters without moving their lips. <laughs> it was one line. <laughs> Because, of course, I mean, it consisted of his friends reading and receiving the letters. Uh, so, anyway, that was, that was my one play for BBC Television. Obviously, this is a feature-length interview, so we will continue it in a second part next week. Um, between now and then, if you would like to donate to Daryl's charity, it's the Actors Benevolent Fund. Uh, sorry, that's a spoiler for next week's episode. Actorsbenevolentfund.co.uk All one word, actorsbenevolentfund.co.uk You can also get your Christmas cards from them as well. I do. Um, until next time, follow me on Twitter, at Toby Haddock, at T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. Ta-ta. You've got to explain what's going to happen. What's going to happen to Earth? Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Doctor Who, novel adaptations, original sin. Ross Forrester, Chris Quench, I guessed. Nice fur. I think the trade name is Body Beppling. Why would anyone want to do that? Why would anyone want to wear high heels? I thought you were on my side. I am. Her SIM cord was on. She turned the picture off to make it look inactive, but the comm light was green. Everything was being heard by someone else. Earth's in an expanding empire phase at the moment. They aren't especially keen on aliens. You'd better keep to yourself, then. Don't I always? If the mind probe record was fake, somebody wants us to believe Annie was guilty. 
So she can't be. She's innocent. So you're saying all these spur of the moment murders are assassinations in disguise with adjudicators covering them up? You don't understand how time works. I can't change what's happened or influence what will be. There's been too much killing, too much pain. If the Hith are to get anywhere, diplomacy is the only solution. I promise. By the time you have screened out your knowledge, one agonized fact at a time, you would rather have died. I'm playing with a fire so dangerous it could scorch eternity. Big finish. We love stories.